Good morning, my friends. It's good to be with you. We've been traveling a lot, and I missed you guys. <laughs> I was thinking about how to start this sermon, a sermon on everyone's absolute favorite spiritual discipline, repentance. Yay! I'm pretty sure there are not many of us who wake up in the morning and think, I sure hope I get a chance to repent today. Repentance is hard. It generally doesn't feel great. We tend to avoid it because it's not much fun. But we need to do it. We need to turn our hearts back to God. Both because it's the right thing to do and because we want to experience the fullness of God's joy for us. Separation from God, because of our not-so-great choices, leaves us feeling empty, distracted, and often lost. Repentance brings us back so we can climb back up on our Father's lap. So if we're going to talk about repentance, we need to spend a little time thinking about what makes us need to repent. There are all kinds of words to represent the wrong things we do. Sin, bad choices, and some older ones like transgressions and iniquities. I think we probably don't use all of these words all the time, but the reason there are so many different words to describe our badness is because we can be bad in so many different ways. I came across a video from the Bible Project that will help us break this down. If you haven't had the chance to view anything from this online project, you are in luck. I found their videos to not only be informative and helpful, but also very thought-provoking and encouraging. One type of video they create is what is called a word study. This word study is from a series of videos they call their Bad Words series. Nothing inappropriate. Just word studies on Bible terms that mean bad things. This study focuses on the word iniquity. If you've never heard of that word, let alone used it, don't worry, you are not alone. Let's turn our attention to the video and we can figure out what we're about to jump into. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Sin refers to moral failure, and transgression describes how we break trust with others. And iniquity? No one even uses that word anymore. So what's it all about? In Bible translations, iniquity is one way the Hebrew word avon gets translated. It's also rendered by words like wickedness, guilt, or sin. So what does avon actually mean? The word avon is related to a Hebrew verb ava, which means to be bent or crooked. The poet of Psalm 36 says his back is avad, that is, bent over in pain. Or in Lamentations chapter 3, a road that isn't straight is one that avaz, that is, it's twisty and crooked. Now, this image of being crooked offered biblical poets a powerful metaphor to talk about people's behavior. Like Jeremiah, who said that Israel had avad their way by violating their covenant with God and giving allegiance to idols. Or in the book of Job, a person who morally fails is someone who avaz what is right. 
In both cases, something that's supposed to be level or even, your choices or your conscience, has been bent out of shape, distorted. In the Bible, avon refers to all kinds of crooked behavior, Ten Commandments kind of stuff, lying, murder, adultery. In Isaiah chapter 59, avon describes the corruption among Israel's leaders who were ignoring the injustice done to the poor. The prophet cleverly adapts the metaphor, saying, we have so much avon, that is crookedness, that uprightness can't even enter our city. Things were so morally distorted in Jerusalem that crooked was the new straight. Another fascinating thing about the word avon is that it refers not only to distorted behavior, but also to the crooked consequences. The hurt people, the broken relationships, the cycles of retaliation. You find this idea in the biblical phrase to punish, which in biblical Hebrew is to visit someone's avon upon them. That is, to let them sit in the consequences of their crooked choices. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said about the Babylonians who were destroying other nations. One day, those nations would destroy them in return. And so Babylon's divine punishment would be having to live in a disfigured world of its own making. This is actually the main way biblical authors talk about God's response to human avon, letting people experience the crooked consequences of their choices. This is the meaning of the common biblical phrase, to bear your iniquity, or in Hebrew, to carry your avon. God gives people the dignity of carrying the consequences of their bad decision. But that's not the only way God responds to avon in the Bible. He also offers to carry the avon of corrupt people as an act of sheer generosity. In fact, carrying avon is the most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness. Like Psalm 32, where the poet says, I didn't hide my avon, but confessed it, and you carried the avon of my sin. This is actually shocking if you stop and think about it. God forgives people by taking responsibility for their avon. This idea reaches its high point in the book of Isaiah, where God appoints a figure called the servant. He will embody God's forgiving love by carrying the avon of many and allowing it to crush him. This servant will absorb humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. But that's not the end of the story. The servant will emerge out the other side of death, alive and well, so he can offer his life to others. When you get to the New Testament, the apostles carry these ideas forward using the Greek word onomia, which has a similar meaning. Like Paul the Apostle, he identified the servant as Jesus, and he said, Our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, gave his life on our behalf in order to redeem us from all of our onomia, our crooked behavior and its consequences. And so, the whole biblical story is about God's desire to take crooked people and the twisted world that we've created and to make everything right. Through Jesus, God invites us to become whole humans once again, people who can walk upright with God and with each other. And that's the story behind the biblical words for iniquity. Like I said, it's always encouraging. So our iniquity means our crookedness, the ways in which we bend the rules, do what we know is not right. Iniquity involves our choices and the consequences that come when we choose the crooked path. One thing that really struck me when I first saw the video was the statement that God grants us the dignity of living with our consequences. He could just wipe our slate clean each time, cleaning up our messes for us. But instead, he treats us with dignity, recognizing our choices and allowing natural consequences to occur. This is especially evident in the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
And if you'd like to follow along, it'll be up on the screen or in a Bible from the seats in front of you. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this uh, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Quite a story. So David slept with Bathsheba knowing her marital status. And when Uriah came from the war, David met with him, encouraged him to go home so he would sleep with Bathsheba himself and the baby could be attributed to Uriah. Uriah refused his sense of honor and duty leading him to sleep on the ground in solidarity with the soldiers still at the front. David then sent Uriah to the front with a letter to Joab telling Joab to essentially let Uriah be killed in battle. He ordered Joab to spring a trap for Uriah to cover his own iniquity. Iniquity breeds iniquity. David began to walk a crooked line, creating difficult circumstances for himself and others, and had to continue in a crooked path to cover his tracks. As soon as the mourning period was over for Uriah, David brought Bathsheba to his house. The text says she was lamenting her husband. David's desire for her overcame his ability to see that he had done a terrible thing a deed that displeased God. 
it also prevented him from recognizing and respecting Bathsheba's grief. Through all of this, David seemed to be driven by desire and propriety. He wanted to make it look like Uriah had fathered the child. He wanted to make it look like Uriah had been killed in the heat of battle and not by design. He waited just long enough for a public mourning period to be over before he claimed Uriah's wife as his own. So now we're going to take a look at how God starts to fix the problem. And this is Nathan's rebuke of David. It's in 2 Samuel 12, if you would like to turn there in your Bible. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Skipping down to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. It's not exactly a happy ending. God loved David enough to send him Nathan the prophet. Nathan used a parable to make David see his iniquity, to see how his desire had led him down a crooked path. He also shares with David what will be the consequences of his actions, including the death of the child of David and Bathsheba. The child became sick, and David turned to the Lord, beseeching him for help. 
fasting, and laying on the ground at night to demonstrate both his repentance and his heart's wish to see his child restored. When the child did die, David's servants were afraid to tell him, fearing he might harm himself. His behavior before the child's death had shown them the depth of his grief, and they didn't want the heartbreak of losing his child to push him over the edge. David realized what must have happened. He could have done just what the servants feared. He could have lashed out in anger at them or himself. He could have harmed himself or others. Instead, he cleaned himself up, went to the temple, and worshipped. We're going to read Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David wrote. Uh, right after all of these events. It's going to be up on the screen. If you'd like to read along with me, you're more than welcome. If you would like to listen, you're more than welcome to do the same. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David uses music to repent. He lifts up his sins, his iniquity, and recognizes that they do not have any place in the heart of one who is following God. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He asks God to clean him up, to heal his broken places, and to blot out all my iniquities. He puts God back in the right place in his own heart. He's tried to play God with the lives of Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab so he could avoid doing what he knew was right. Now he is repenting of that attitude and asking God to lead him again. Uh, here's a bit of a challenge. I'm going to ask you to consider a way that you have been making a straightforward direction from God into a crooked iniquity. We're going to sing together, Create in Me a Clean Heart, and we're going to follow David's example of putting God in at the center of our hearts, following his lead and not our own. We're going to use this chance to repent with our family in Christ. Repentance is hard, and as we do it together, we can learn how to do it better. There will be some time during the song to freely worship God. This might mean you sing words that don't appear on the screen. This might mean that you use the words on the screen as a guide and focus on one word or phrase that God wants to write on your heart today. Or it might mean that you freely worship him in silence, listening to the voices around you and having your own private conversation with God. You can sit or stand, kneel, raise your hands, whatever you feel led to do in response to God's forgiveness and compassion.
Worship as the Lord be.
As I was studying this text and thinking about God's forgiveness, struck by his compassion for David, he could have not sent Nathan at all. He could have let David's child die without David knowing that it was a direct consequence of his choices. David could have blamed it on bad luck or evil disease. But God wanted David to be able to repent. He wanted to forgive David, so he sent him Nathan to prepare his heart. There was a time when I needed to apologize to part of this church family. A couple of my friends were maligned by other friends of ours, and while I did not join in the gossip and bad-mouthing, I did not stand up for those friends either. In public school, we call this being a guilty bystander. I probably didn't want to get involved. I know I didn't do my best to stand up for them and defend the truth about them. Years later, God began to show me how being a guilty bystander was not okay with him. I was working with students in a similar situation and was counseling the bystander in that instance to consider standing up for the truth. The Holy Spirit brought to my mind this couple of friends that I had not extended the same courtesy. I began to be convicted about my poor choices and God helped me to approach these friends and apologize. He helps us through every step of our journey, even when we put ourselves on a crooked path. God also surrounded David with a host of people to care for him in his grief. Even though he caused the grief himself, his servants continually cared for him, trying to speak to him while he was sitting by his dying child's bedside and worrying about how to break the news to him that his child had actually passed away. They were concerned for his mental state, worried that he might do harm to himself. After he had worshipped the Lord, they brought him food, even though he had rejected them earlier when they tried to feed him. David had sinned, led others into sin, killed one of their own people, and ignored the care they had offered. They had many reasons to fault David, even to reject and revile him, but they chose to care for him. We need to be that kind of church. We need to be a church where people can repent and feel safe. We need to come alongside each other in our times of grief and repentance. We all need to show both compassion to those who are turning their hearts back to God and to feel compassion from our church family when we are repenting ourselves. We are well on our way to becoming this kind of church. We are known for being a place of love. We often hear from newcomers that they felt welcomed and cared for as soon as they walked through the doors. I've heard that it feels like family, and that is something that I know God is proud of about us. What I'm suggesting is that we take our family to the next level. Families can be pretty messy, and when a child misbehaves, we have to parent them carefully. They need us to be right next to them for the guilty feelings the sadness of having to say sorry. We have to show them that even though the process of repentance is difficult, the result is worth it and that we love them all the way through it. Love is a little bit harder when we have to commit to sharing the hard times as well as the easy times. But if we can make that commitment to our church family, learn to be there for each other in times of repentance, we will strengthen our relationships with each other and with our God. I wrote a song of repentance recently. I'd like to share it with you. It's about an iniquity that I'm willing to bet most of us have committed. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when you are sharp-eyed and sharp-tongued? 
Your eyes are critical, able to point out the faults of anyone in front of you with a single glance. Your sharp tongue is like a sword ready to slice down anyone who crosses your path. Being near you is like doing battle with a superhero of sarcasm and snobbishness. This song is about those sharp edges. It's about asking God to smooth those edges back down so when we come alongside someone in need, we can bring his compassion instead of cutting them down. Let's learn the chorus so that you can worship with us. I will choose to listen to your spirit's call for peace. I will choose to listen to your love. Sing with me if you'd like. spirits call for peace. I will choose to listen to your love. I will live in your peace and not in my peace. I will let your peace gather up my pieces. I will live in your love. You can just listen to the verses if you like. I wrote a lot of words. I'm so sorry. When my mind is bleak, when my tongue won't speak words of comforting, when my heart won't sing, when your eyes won't see your child in front of me, when I've fallen apart and I can't find your heart, I will choose. I will choose to listen to your spirit's call for peace. I will choose to listen to your love. I will choose. I will choose to listen to your spirit. It should be you 
that I feed my pride and I shatter inside and my words cut deep my compassion sleeps and the pieces of me need your healing peace I will choose to listen to your spirit's call for peace I will choose to listen to your love I'll live in your peace living in a world of sharp edges right now. And let us be the people that we've all heard many times that all of us sin, all of us walk some crooked path of iniquity and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason we have all heard it is because it is true. Sometimes we phrase it as nobody's perfect or telling little white lies, but we know we are wrong and we choose to sin anyway. So if we all do it, that means we all need to repent at some point. I would encourage us to today to consider repentance as a family activity. There are times when we need to come back to God on our own. We need to find a quiet place, have a chat with God that doesn't involve anyone else. The thing is, I don't know about you, but for me, repentance doesn't always feel that good. It's painful to admit that I am wrong Guilt is not a comfortable emotion, and the consequences of my sin are definitely not a fun time. When we come together in worship, we can take the opportunity to repent and then to have our church family around us to support us through the aftermath. So we're going to worship now, and I'd like to invite up the rest of the worship team. I know what I'm asking takes some bravery. Our natural instinct leads us to hide our iniquities, not let anyone see how we've strayed, but we've all strayed. Therefore, we all understand how easy it is to sin. I encourage you today to be brave enough to repent with your family in Christ and to also be wise enough and compassionate enough to care for those who are walking back to the straight path and leaving their crookedness behind. <laughs> 